HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hi, my name is Sam Ben Ruby, and I'm the host of The Grape Nation on Heritage Radio Network. With this show, we bring wine to the people. Each week, we bring the best guests in wine on, taste different wines on air, and invite our listeners to taste with us. You'll find our approach to wine decidedly unsnobby. You can find The Grape Nation wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. So we are going to get started with might be the most unsexy topic for for the seminars. But look at all these people. Um, But it is a fascinating... Actually, when you get into the whole idea of hybrid grapes and you realize how much um, prejudice fuels people's reaction against them, and the the great, um, you know... Obstacle that people working with hybrids have had to. Co- anyway, forget all that. I'm. I'm. Let's let's just get right into this. I'm Alice Firing, and we are going to be talking about hybrids today. And on my panel, we have Deirdre Hegan, Queen of Vermont, uh, working and uh, working and banging the drum for hybrids and showing us all in a very verbal way how amazing they can be. So she works up in Vermont and has been working for 10 years, right? I'm sure um, she works zero, zero. So uh, no input in, no chemicals in the vineyard, no chemicals in the winery, and no SO2. Next to her is Lewis Dixon, who in his other life is kind of a high-powered attorney. Who has been, you are, Lewis. (laughs) Who has been championing natural wine in, of all places, Texas since 2001, uh, starting out working first with Tony Cattori in that zero, zero ethos. And I visited, I can't remember, maybe around 2011 and had my first experience with one of the hybrids that he works with black Spanish, which is what you're going to be having in your glass. Next to him is Ryan Sturm, who is started out as a wrestler, I understand, and then found his way into winemaking. <laughs> Did a lot of work in some conventional wineries and then found his way into making much more natural wine. And Ryan does not work with any hybrids, except he thinks a lot about them. And wants to do well. Actually, you'll see how we're going to fold him in to this little panel. He does have a purpose here. (laughs) Okay. So with that, when I first, when Isabel first asked me to do this, I was like, okay, I want to do this. I love hybrids. I can champion them. They're great. But honestly, I keep on going over. I keep on reading so much about hybrids and never truly understanding. There's still so many questions out there. What is a hybrid? Even if you look, scour 
all of the definitions, you will see a million different definitions from people who should know better. So are they a cross between vinifera and American, high, American native vines? Are they, well, what are they? Deirdre, can you tell us what they are? Okay. Uh, so hybrids uh, are really quite simple. Uh, I think we like to complicate everything. The human mind likes to complicate everything. Uh, but they are quite simple. It is, on the, in, in the simplest way, they are a cross-pollination or a crossing of specific or interspecific grape varieties. And what that means, if I say specific grape varieties, that means I'm crossing two vinifera. And there's certainly hybrids out there that are made from two, a crossing of two vinifera. Interspecific varieties would be like the kind of thing that I grow in Vermont, which would be taking, uh, yes, indigenous American varieties, things like uh, Vitis riparia, uh, Vitis rupestris, uh, and crossing them with vinifera, but also sometimes other hybrids uh, and other kinds of species of vines from other parts of the world. So when you look at a, you want me to make one, it? Yeah, just yeah. one question, okay. just one, to clear up <laughs> okay. that, um, can you briefly give the idiot's version of all these kind of fetus, whatever you call it, because vinifera and you know, like yes. Labrusco and uh, uh, Labrusca, Labrusca, not Labrusca. Labrusca. Yes, Labrusca. Labrusca. Yeah, so there are uh, probably about seven different uh, ones. So there's the Rupestris, well, there's Vinifera that we all know. There's Rupestris, Riparia, Labrusca, Estivalis, uh, Amarensis, which is from uh, Asia, and Rotundifolia, or the Muscadines, which I think you're probably going to mention something about because those happen down in the south. So those are kind of the main is ones. Is Sylvestris in there, or just because um, it's well, wild it doesn't? Okay, so Sylvestris usually doesn't get uh, used because okay. Sylvestris is the wild parent of Vinifera, but it is a species that okay. is what Vinifera comes okay. from. So anyway, so yeah. hybrids would be... So a hybrid would be a crossing of any and all of those things, uh, as many as you could do, or just two. So it's just mm -hmm. simply a cross-pollination. And it does not have to be an American. That is true. Okay, it does cool. not have to be an American. So we have just true. cleared up one very big myth yeah. okay. in the hybrid. <laughs> okay, now it gets a lot of bad press of being Franken-Wein. Is it DNA? Is this where? Ryan comes in to talk? Or, well, yeah, we could talk about how some hybrids are produced, both uh, out in the field and, and in the lab. So there's a couple of different ways to make a cross, but uh, whether you're using DNA sequencing or using traditional methods, typically out in the field, a, a premature cluster that is like an undeveloped flower will get selected and you'll remove the cap off the flower and trip off, or trim off all the uh, stamens on the flower, and you'll bag that up, and you'll take some pollen from another vine that's already released it, and you'll shake that and dust it on the flower and close it back up, and you'll remove the fruit when it's mature, collect the seeds, and grow those out. And the, the difference between using DNA and traditional methods is that at the seedling stage, you can take bits and pieces now of uh, just young leaves and use that to sequence the entire uh, genome of each individual seedling, which you can look at specific traits of in, in the lab and cull and make your selections very early on without having to grow seedlings out. And the old school method where a lot of hybrids that are currently used and grown were grown out and selected for traits out in the field, which takes obviously a hell of a lot longer than looking at something in, in a lab and looking for other genetic markers, and that's quite fairly new, and gaining popularity because of how cheap it is now, versus naturally occurring hybrids, which are natural crosses that happen in the field without any human intervention at all, and those are 
I don't know which ones are commercially used, but there are a few that are all grown for mm -hmm. other purposes as well. Now, as, as a layperson, I, I did not set any of you up with this question, but I'm realizing you're here, so you get to answer my questions. <laughs> because I want to know, how is this different from clonal selection that has gotten us so much into so much trouble in the vineyard of sterile clones as opposed to laboratory hybrids? Well, the clones are originally, like out in a vineyard, they're just a mutation of a variety that shows uh, like biotype differences in, in the field, and that could be based on the location it's grown. But the more popular the variety, the more clonal material that you have to like work with. But uh, hybrid is a like a, a sexual reproduction <coughs> crossing, and a clonal selection is not sexually right. reproduced, and that's a big difference. Right, so the clonal selection is made from a cutting from the mother plant. Um, you can do it a couple of different ways with vegetative propagation. You can do a cutting, you can do what's called layering, which is when you take the vine and you grow it back down into the soil and it roots when it's on the ground, and then you, you create another new vine there. Um, and when you replicate, when you take that cutting and you root it, you are replicating the exact plant uh, as the mother. When you're growing from seed or when you're doing uh, the grape breeding hybridization, you're allowing for diversity. And that's one of the major issues that I think, you know, we're all interested in, you guys are all interested in, is that uh, when you do these clonal selections, while there may be mutations that are occurring over a long period of time, they, uh, they aren't allowing for genetic diversity. And they, the plants uh, become weaker and weaker instead of becoming stronger and stronger. And that's where we get into trouble with these clonal selections of things like Chardonnay, Pinot, Merlot, all the classics, because they just uh, kind of can't keep up with what's happening in terms of uh, climate change and other environmental issues right now. And jot down all of your questions. We will take some questions at the end, so just make sure you remember them. So there are all sorts of kinds of hybrids. There are the hybrids that are done in, in the field um, by and they're the accidental hybrids. And that brings us to the wine that you have in your glass, which is from Lou. It is black Spanish. And I'm going to let Lou talk about this. And then I'll go ahead, take it away. Yeah, when, I, uh, when I started my vineyard, I planted in 2000, I started off with 11 different types of varieties. Um, having good reason to believe a lot of them would not work. And I had good reason to believe a few of them would based on what I'd read, but I wanted to see firsthand. And I think I recommend that people do this. I, I, I didn't give it any fertilizer, no fungicides. I kept the work rows clean uh, and got water to them if they needed water, but I wanted to see who the survivors were. Um, and I had Chardonnay, Sangiovese, cuttings from Cabernet cuttings from Ridge Montebello. I had some uh, suitcase clones that I brought back from France uh, with me, some uh, Syrah, Mauverdre, Grenache, Tanat, a uh, bunch, of, bunch of players that you've heard of. And then I had uh, three other vines, Norton or Cynthiana, uh, Black Spanish, also called Lenoir. And that's the more I read about Black Spanish, the more confusing it gets. But <laughs> From what I understand, uh, one version is it was brought over in the late 1600s by French settlers, Huguenots, escaping religious persecution. It was planted in the area around Savannah, Georgia. Uh, I understand they had the know-how to do exactly what we've talked about, uh, but there could have been some hybridization naturally or purposefully, uh, but eventually, just like later, 100 years later or so, Thomas Jefferson realized, wow, those cuttings that I brought from France that I was so proud of are dying. 
probably died from Pierce disease. And that's what happened to the principal mm -hmm. vineyards that the Huguenots brought. But they were taking cuttings and pruning every year and propagating them. And, and eventually it got very significant. Uh, I, I think it, it started over here, uh, but I think they started taking some of the propagated cuttings back to Europe, later eventually to fight phylloxera. Uh, and I think there was some, some hybridization going on by design over there. Um, Berlandieri is, a, is a, another species uh, that Deidre didn't mention, but supposedly black Spanish. Did you mention that? I didn't know. Okay. Uh, but, but black Spanish supposedly has, it doesn't have astravelis in it. It has Berlandieri, mm -hmm. supposedly about 69% venephora based on DNA studies, and that depends on what exactly you're testing. Are you testing Lenoir, Jacquez, Blue French, Brown, uh, Brown French, Herbmont, or so it gets, it gets confusing. But anyway, I, I, in addition to the vinifera I've mentioned, I did, I did Norton, Cynthiana, Black Spanish, and Blanc du Bois. And the Blanc du Bois is kind of funny because I didn't intend to plant Blanc du Bois. I ordered Black Spanish from the nursery in Texas. And of course, when you plant a vine, you don't really know until the uh, until the next year uh, that, wow, this fruit's not going through voracious. Um, that's a problem. And, I, and, and Alice mentioned that Tony Katuri is my teacher and mentor. And, and I called Tony and I said, you know, the, the Blanc du Bois uh, is, uh, I mean, the Black Spanish is not Black Spanish. It's Blanc du Bois. And Tony went, good Lord, I don't make white wine. I'm Italian. I make red wine. And uh, we're going to have to graft them over or do something, because I'm not fooling with that. And then the next time he came to the ranch, he said, what's that? And I said, that's the Blanc du Bois. And he said, we're keeping that. That's happy. So anyway, I wound up phasing out Cynthia and Norton. I liked it, but it's a very pulpy grape, and you need to have about five acres of it, and I didn't. So I grow Black Spanish and Blanc du Bois, and I'm very happy with them. Um, there are the two of the three that I thought were the most uh, had the most survival personality and the, were the happiest ones. And uh, I learned over the years, I think, how to make wine from black Spanish. This is what you're tasting is a 2017, 100% black Spanish. Um, it's been about a year in hybrid barrels. Uh, I've never had commercial yeast on my property. I wouldn't know how to mix up a batter of yeast. I use uh, sulfites to sterilize my equipment with. Uh, and I rinse it off good, and further I knoweth not about about that. But I want to talk about it more. But I'm, I'm, you know, the the Blanc du Bois and the Black Spanish have their profile uh, and their personalities. Uh, I, I think they have a place at the table with serious wines. They're immune or resistant to Pierce disease, so I don't have to load my vineyard up with. 24-7 life support in the form of, uh, what do they call that? Not uh, Admire. I love the names they give. Them. Admire is one that gets systemic in the plant. And they're after a glassy-winged sharpshooter insect, but it disorients or kills any insect that comes into contact with it. And I have literally been in California before and seen signs of certified organic California growers. And, and you ask the people on the side, just just between us, are you using Admire? It's a $60 million vineyard. Of course we're using Admire. So um, love to talk more about the wines that I make from it. But uh, I saw firsthand what wanted to be there. Uh, and it was Black Spanish and Blanc du Bois in my vineyard where I was. And I think the most important thing that a vineyard can, most important decision is what to grow what not what the market wants, but what grows in your place. And this is uh, a challenge that is definitely uh, we're facing as climate change wrecks havoc with the world on top of the idea that until recently, many new world growers just planted what they wanted, forgetting where they were. And this is what is changing right now. I'm going to go on to that because that's going to bring us into the future. But I want to say a little bit more about uh, Black Spanish Lenoir. Or a few weeks ago, I had a Jacquet, which is the same grape, 
and it was from Catalonia, from old vines, like about 120-year-old vines. The winemaker was Oriol Ortigas, and I was served it blind. It was a gorgeous wine. You, won't, you probably won't be able to find it because there's, he hardly made any. But when you have a wine like that, and you realize how much prejudice there is about hybrids, and something that was clearly the wine of the night, you have to figure out, and I often think about this prejudice against grapes. What, how did Merlot and Chardonnay and Cabernet become so supreme? It is really kind of like a supremacist notion of what the wine world is that is grossly unfair, because if you're a natural winemaker especially, you want to have the greatest impact for the least input. You basically want to grow what belongs where you are um, and has to sense it out. So what is the future? Why, first of all, actually, you grow hybrids. Why? Because that's what grows there. <laughs> that's the answer. But I, I actually want to go back to something you were saying about uh, as a vigneron, we want to to grow the thing that grows and wants to be in the landscape. And, you know, Louis, you speak about that really beautifully about your two grapes, that they wanted to be there. Um, but I think that we went through a phase of where people knew that, okay, in Vermont, we can't grow Cabernet Sauvignon. No way. <laughs> so we have to grow something else that is going to be uh, more suited to that climate. So say we take a, a red grape like Marquette, which we'll, we'll taste momentarily. And then there was a misconnect of, uh, or disconnect, uh, maybe misconnect is better, of, you know, I'm planting the thing that grows in my place, but I still want to make Cabernet Sauvignon. So I'm going to do everything I can to make it taste like Cabernet Sauvignon, whether that's with cultivated yeast or uh, deacidifying or uh, the number of things that, as you said, I don't even know <laughs> what I might do to a wine to make it taste like Cabernet. Um, but we went through a period, I think, early on, particularly in the Northeast, uh, probably the same in Texas with people growing hybrids down there, that uh, the wines were still trying to be forced into a box. And it's really only been in the last 10 years or so that we've been able to start to move away from that and uh, bring in line the what grows in a place and what that wine want, wants to be and wants that, what that wine wants to say about that place. Let me make a couple of comments. I've had people come in my tasting room and I mentioned black Spanish Blanc du, Blanc du Bois, and they go, I've never heard of that before. And I kiddingly say, really, is that, is that the only thing you've never heard of in this world? I mean, I need to hang around you. You must really be smart. Uh, you know, it's, what's in a name? I mean, how many times have you been at a gathering and someone walks in the room and they've got a presence about them and you know immediately that you like him or her? You don't have a clue what their name is. It might be Rumpelstiltskin. It doesn't matter what their name is. Um, Deidre kind of mentioned this, uh, hybrid grapes are not stepchildren. And I can tell you, they're not stepchildren, but I can tell you if you treat a grape like a stepchild, it's going to behave like a stepchild. Do not look at hybrid grapes as stepchildren. In fact, the first time I came to Raw, your wines were the ones that, that I walked away with the most positive impression because they were well made, but they're so different. This is so different, and I, I love that. I mean, it's, it's really not easy to come across a well-made hybrid grape like this. It's easy to come across a lot of vinifera. So um, it, it's, you know, they're like, you know, they're not problem-free. I've known a lot of straight-A students that wound up in jail some Saturday night for, <laughs> you know, not being old enough to have a bunch of beer in the trunk of the car or whatever, but, uh, or worse. but. Um, it's, it's uh, these, when you do the trial and error that I did, these grapes are like children that don't want to run away from home. And they're, it, it's a more positive experience to work with them than to struggle. Like Alice said, you got to recognize where you are. I mean, I've looked at the map more than once or twice. I'm not in Cabernet country for a lot of reasons. And that's okay. Um, so, you know, I, I, you know, my, 
my advice is don't get all wrapped up in a name particularly and, and don't, don't view hybrid grapes as stepchildren. They're not. Well, one reason that they're definitely not when you go back to the notion of the grape is just translating the terroir. And it's a little bit, it's the dance, but their purpose is to do the best to, to reflect the place. And when I had that jacquet from Oriol, I knew it was Spanish. Knew it was Spanish, I knew it was Catalonian, had no idea what it was, but it did bring me to a place. And one of the things that I always quote Dieter from saying, which is every year her grapes reflect the place more and become right. less about the grape. Do you want right. to say something about right. that? Uh, sure. Um, well, and I think that that happens actually in any vineyard. And so, mm -hmm. you know, maybe yes. going back to this idea of, you know, a hybrid's not a stepchild, it's just like any other grape, that uh, a wine grower's goal is to, as a vineyard is growing, that it uh, each year becomes less and less about variety uh, and more and more about the bedrock, the microclimate, the people who grow it, um, all those elements of terroir that we like to talk about. And I have definitely no noticed that, that uh, with the grapes that we're working with, that every year it's just a little bit less about Marquette and more about that clay and limestone or that volcanic soil or the flowers that are in that vineyard or you know, whatever those elements are, or what my experience was that year, you know, personally, and how I interact and have a conversation with the fruit that I'm growing. So, um, but I would be doing that if I were growing hybrids or if I were growing a viognier, you know, somewhere. It would be, it would be the same. It'd be the same. It's not different. By the way, gorgeous wine right here. Thank you. Don't y'all think? I mean, <laughs> what's what's I'd be really real wonderful? Happy to make a wine and like it's this. it's yeah. very much for since I know Vermont wine now, I can say it's very Vermont, <laughs> and yours is very Texan. Yeah, which is it's good. just it does very much reflect the place. Exactly. I believe. I, I wanted to touch base on the question that Alice had though about um, why hybrids are grown in the first place, and like I think it, for, I don't. I've never been to Vermont, but a big reason is because you guys need to ensure that you have winter hardiness. Exactly. And late bud break, and in <clears throat> places like California where hybrids aren't currently grown, we think about drought tolerance, mildew resistance, mm -hmm. uh, other inputs that we use in the vineyard that we're trying to reduce. So they really hold a lot of promise to like reduce the carbon footprint from a lot of different reasons um, that you could come up with a whole laundry list of things from yeah, frost tolerance, winter hardiness, drought tolerance, disease resistance, like Pierce's disease, or phylloxera, powdery mildew is a big one, and, and so on and so forth. And each region has individual challenges that they need to address. And so there are probably thousands of new hybrids that would fulfill a particular ecological niche in, in each different wine region that would be well-suited and that aren't currently used. So. Well, and I think also, Ryan, that one of the things that uh, happens also is like people will say, why grow grapes at all? You know, Vermont, apples are, have been there for centuries. Why, why are you not just making cider? And I always love to tell people that actually the apple is uh, the, the plant that was brought to the United States and the grape was native. It was indigenous. Um, but I think that, you know, if we dial it back even back to that, like why, why do that, is I think it has something to do with our culture and food culture. I mean, I noticed uh, coming from a restaurant background that as a food culture developed in Vermont, and also I would say as like food culture in California, people became interested in fermentation. And, you know, wines, spirits, beer, uh, all the things, cider, all the things that go with food as part of food and as part of preservation of food. So in Vermont, as our food culture developed uh, within the last 30 years, uh, people became more interested in where their food was coming from, how it was appearing on the plate, the restaurant culture was growing, and as a consequence, 
fermentation, concepts of fermentation began to grow. And therefore, people wanted to start, you know, we started with artisanal beer. Uh, cider had a revolution. And then uh, we had the opportunity to plant grapes like the, high, the cold hardy plants that we have, and we could now have wine. So I think there's something really um, important and kind of magical about that uh, as well. Why do you think that, um, really because of natural wine movement, hybrids are being taken seriously? I don't believe that this would have happened had it not been for your work, for Lou's work. It came out of the natural wine world. Why? Well, I think it was something that uh, Lewis said earlier, which is that um, hybrids don't want to be put in a box. Uh, I have, I think, <laughs> being somebody who personifies things, that uh, you know, you try and and direct a hybrid with all these things we talked about before, like cultivated yeast or deacidification or. Um, whatever, they will kick and scream all their, their way to the bottle and out of the bottle. They hate it. But if you leave them alone and let them be what they want to be, they're happy. And that's, I mean, that seems like a very childlike, naive kind of perception, but I think, you know, you I would say right. the same. I, I, I don't, I think they want to be a choir. They don't yeah. want to be America's next idol. They want to be a choir. <laughs> and you got to leave the natural winemaking movement lets the voices stay in the choir. When you start adding mm -hmm. sulfites, you're telling important voices to go home. And that's the beautiful thing about a choir because the lesser than voices will kind of take the America's idol and the wine down a few notches and keep things in perspective. So um, I, I agree with that very much, Alice, that, that it's the natural wine movement that gives the uh, stage for uh, hybrids not to be stepchildren, to allow them to fully express themselves, because nobody really knows what black Spanish tastes like, because nobody's left it alone. And mm -hmm. good, bad, otherwise, or indifferent, the first wine you tasted is 100% black Spanish from my vineyard in a very good year. It's young, it's got some a pretty zippy backbone of acid, but uh, it's exactly expressing what it wants to express, and I haven't gotten in its way. And it's, it's really rewarding to do that. Um, so I think it's important. Uh, if, again, if you tried to make a natural wine, or tried to make a wine, con quote, conventionally with a hybrid grape, I think it would bite you in the ass. Uh, I really do, because you're not letting it go down the road it wants to go, and that's treating a wine like a stepchild. You know, let them let them be what they want to be, and you're going to be really proud of them. I think. So, do any of you have any worries about the future of hybrids when technology starts going in and really trying to to fiddle and second guess nature and the needs that will arise for with climate change? I mean, that's a, of course. I mean, it. If you're Selecting for things without letting them grow out, you're possibly missing out on how things are actually expressed in the real world, whether or not they have a certain genetic marker or not that maybe predisposes them to something else. You're obviously missing out on flavor, for one. You're missing out on, you're probably missing out on a lot because mm -hmm. you're selecting for only a, a, a certain set number of variables when you're genetically calling seedlings out before you grow them fully. And so that would be one case in which, yeah, you absolutely are possibly missing out on other discoveries that you could make by doing things uh, slow. Mm -hmm. hmm. How fast can you speed it up? Uh, with the cost of sequencing coming down, you could dramatically speed things up because you can grow seedlings out in just a couple of weeks and have uh, DNA used to uh, get a full sequencing of, uh, you know, a couple hundred different seedlings from a cluster of mm. grapes that's used. So all, I want to say like all those seeds have some slight genetic differences because it's all sexually reproduced. So 200 different sets of, of genomes and you're going through to find 
may be the best genetic markers that you're going to select for, and so you're missing out on a, another 199 you know, possible seedlings and, and genetic material that could be of value in some way with a, a slight difference. It's you know, obviously very important to have some genetic diversity in the world. Um, Actually, that's a good segue obvious. for me to go back to remember to ask you a question that I forgot, which is about the Marquette. So Lenoir is a very old hybrid, uh, probably around the 1600s, maybe earlier, that actually got brought back to Spain and planted greatly in Madeira. Now, Marquette, on the other hand, right. and speaking about diversity. Right. So Marquette was... Uh, they started work on Marquette in 1989, uh, doing the de the description that Ryan used of actually doing the hand pollination between plants, which takes a very long time to come up with a plant that is going to have characteristics like flavor, disease resistance, all the things that we would want from a, a wine. So Marquette didn't release on the market until 2006. So 89 to 2006, it took that long to do all the trials and to come up with something that they felt like they could, uh, the university could patent and put out on the market. Um, can I also go back to this other question? Please, it's a conversation. Um, so I, I, I actually hadn't heard of this, but Alice had mentioned to me recently about this company called VitisGen that uh, is sponsored by the USDA, which is doing exactly this genetic sequencing that you're talking about. And, you know, of course, their concerns are about, um, they actually don't ever talk about climate change. They only talk about the needs of the, of the uh, consumer, <laughs> the needs of the consumer. Um, so it is happening, and it's terrifying, I think, for any of us who are in this room. But I do think that it's a little bit like talking about the death of the book. Uh, you know, how long have we been talking about books are going to die and everything will become digital, and here we are still reading books and printing books. I also was reading an article recently about uh, how the average wine consumer, more than any other food group, uh, their vegetables, their wheat, um, they are very skittish, and you talked about you know, respect or lack of respect. They're very skittish about the term genetically modified in association with wine. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, fortunately uh, that that puts us in a position of uh, sticking with old-fashioned grape hybridization, grape breeding, which is, I mean, you know, I don't know the Romans were doing it, I'm sure the Georgians were doing it. Um, and that uh, the the people out there who you know are buying a bottle of wine they don't want that so I think that that is going to work to mm -hmm. our advantage in terms of protecting and I think that's really important to protect these old ways of of grape breeding um, I don't know I I don't know if you guys feel the same way about yeah. that yeah. yeah absolutely grape breeding in the old way is a kind of cultural art from the breeder himself by choosing exactly what plants they're going to not just cross, but choosing s individual selections of each variety that they want to cross. So it's, mm -hmm. it really takes on a, an art form and who's, who's making these selections and, and making the crosses and, and what they're looking for in growing out uh, cut it, or seedlings and, and how, they, how they make their selections off that. You know, there are, you know, when you have a vineyard, especially a small one like mine, you get to know the plants. And I've got some plants that are just better than others. I mean, uh, I've got, I've got a, a several plants that just historically don't have a lot of fruit. And I think, you know, you don't want to get the sample from that. I mean, you, there, you literally, I think, can get uh, your most prolific vines and, and work, work off of those. But it's, I mean, it's literally that, that exact thing is, you know, each, each person's going to have their own set of traits that they, they want to breed for, and maybe they want lower yielding vines for some reason, or maybe they want, you know, more mildew resistance that they see in, in one vine, but it, it is all individual, like, individuality expresses itself on a vineyard by vineyard basis, obviously, and it does take a, uh, a trained eye and a certain, like, disposition to make those selections and those crosses. Do you want to talk about some of the diversity that's in market? Well, 
Because I don't think we can. Did, did we do that? We didn't do well, that, right? Uh, not, uh, not so much. No, no we didn't. didn't talk about that. But so I would like to direct everybody to a really amazing website <laughs> called Chateau Strip Mine, which uh, has all of the parentage uh, records of every grape in the world that is a cross of something. Um, so when you look up Marquette or any of the hybrids I grow or what Lewis is growing, they're incredibly Baroque. And I think we did talk a little bit about, you know, the, the crossings that happen are between, uh, in our case, uh, Northern American species with vinifera, with other hybrids. And when we look at, they're like maybe 20 to 30 different Cybel uh, hybrids. Uh, that was a, a hybridizer in France uh, that during the time of phylloxera was uh, breeding a lot of different hybrids for, uh, for Europe. Uh, and of course, they're all, they're all numbered. Um, there's Repestris, there's Riparia. Uh, there's also, for vinifera, it's amazing. There's everything from Bourbonlanc to Merlot to uh, Cabernet Sauvignon to Cabernet Franc. There's, um, uh, I think I said Monastrel. There's Moscato d'Amburgo. There's Pinot Noir. That is the most recognized uh, grandparent of Marquette. There is uh, Grenache, uh, Chocoli, that was a new one I didn't know about um, that I looked at recently. Um, so an amazing variety um, of a family tree. And it is actually like looking at your own family tree with all these different individuals coming together to make this one. Um, and it's, it's, uh, that website is amazing showing that. Hmm. Yes, it is yeah. a win, and it's really going yeah. down the rabbit hole. Yeah, yeah. So is there any way that in a few years the Marquette will be um, on the slopes of the Cote d'Or? Um, <laughs> yes, actually. <laughs> I know some people planting already. Um, I mean, I think it's going to get pretty weird, actually. I mean, I know uh, in Europe there's so much talk about hybrids right now, and... Um, making them, um, and that's a whole discussion of kind of the smear campaign of hybrids and why that happened post phylloxera. Mm -hmm. uh, and now people are trying to bring back hybrids and make them legal because it's actually prohibited to plant them in many uh, AOC and DOC areas mm -hmm. uh, because everybody knows that with climate change, things are changing very quickly. And you know, people growing Morved in Provence are not going to be able to grow Morved in Provence in 10 years. I mean, that's what they believe. They, they're they starting to look at varieties in Greece and Spain that they can replant Morved. Um, I think it could be really strange for us in Vermont. You know, I'm so delighted to be growing these hybrids, but 20 years from now, I might be growing Pinot, and that's really weird. You do have really a little bit of right? We, and you um, had... Actually, no, I don't anymore. You, you I, took it out? I took it. It's just I was kind like, of, you know, I, think I tore it all out. probably you, both, you all had the same prejudice when you started, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Which is, I have to grow. What did you want to grow? I wanted to grow Riesling and Blaufrankisch, which was very ill-advised. Um, and, and I have to say, I mean... But uh, well, you are kind of now. It's kind of Blaufrankisch. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of Blaufrankisch, right. Um, but I, I did actually pull them out because, A, it was just stupid. Uh, I couldn't get them to fruit, so it was, a, it was a bad idea to begin with. I also didn't plant them in the right place. Um, but I, once we started making wines with these varieties, I was so intrigued by what was possible and what the stories they wanted to tell and what that reflection of our landscape was. It was like, there are a lot of people that make great Riesling. I don't need to make great Riesling. Um, but nobody's telling this story with these kinds of varieties, much like you're doing. Um, with your varieties down in Texas, and, and I'm actually very curious to what you know, you're thinking about <laughs> um, for the future in California. Yeah. Um, so, I don't, yeah. Yeah, so Ryan, what is the future of hybrids in California? Um, <laughs> uh, uh, well, there, okay, so we, we do have uh, 11,000 acres of one hybrid that is 
just across uh, vinifera grapes. It's called Ruby Red, um, and it's used to make uh, food coloring called Mega Purple, uh, which adds color to wine and uh, Easter eggs, <laughs> among other things. Um, but in California, we, we actually do have native grapes as well. Uh, we have uh, two, if not three, different uh, natives called Vitus Californica and Vitus Jerdiana. Uh, n both of which aren't being used commercially in any form. So how I got kind of roped into this talk is uh, I'm using Vitus Californica as rootstock just from wild selection cuttings. Um, we also have a naturally occurring hybrid that is a cross of Alicante Boucher and Vitus Californica that was uh, found recently in, in uh, the 80s by a horticulturalist who's really into California natives and it just had really cool red leaves, so he thought it was super interesting. And later on, it was found out that it was indeed a hybrid and a, just a natural crossing. And that's grown ornamentally in California because we don't have the uh, fall season and yellow and red leaves, so it looks really pretty. Um, so it's, it's grown ornamentally all over, but it does have good bearing fruit. And in California, where we do have a lot of heat, it has a lot of acidity. And so this has, for you know, Californians, uh, acid is uh, something we think about quite a bit because we can get stuff right, but um, we don't always have naturally occurring acidity. And so this holds some promise, but it also is more resistant to powdery mildew than vinifera is, um, most likely because California is set up a little bit more like a monoculture and we have you know thousands of acres planted together of not just the same variety but the same mm -hmm. clonal material that's right. uh, pretty ubiquitous and so hmm. um, I'm looking issue. at like uh, yeah just using more more natives because they obviously grow just fine where we are um, they've lived there a long time and there's a pretty big gene pool of natives currently in use but we don't have any hybrids that are made from uh, native grapes and crossed with vinifera besides that one that I mentioned called Rogers Red. So, do, do you know if UC Davis is doing some experiments with hybrids? Yes. Uh, I, heard they, I heard they had put in some experimental vineyards. Yeah, Andy Walker made a crossing of Vitus Arizonica with a vinifera species for Pierce's disease resistance and I, f I forgot the name but I think I think the Ojai Vineyard in uh, Ojai, mm -hmm. um, they lost their vineyard in the 90s to Pierce's. They replanted with this hybrid uh, as a trial, and I huh. think it's a red grape. So there's little bits and pieces starting to come in, but um, I, me personally, I'm just looking at uh, California natives uh, specifically. Mm -hmm. Why don't we... We can go on and talk and talk, but I do want to make sure there's time for you guys. Uh, are there any questions? Yes, okay, let's just do it. So the question is, just your last few words, how do you have the grape varieties talk to each other in the vineyard and in the cellar? Well, how do you handle the... Mm -hmm. 
Go ahead. Can I, can I go? Yes. Uh, so when I started, I started specifically with the intention of doing only single variety wines because nobody knew what they could really be, right? Uh, in the university programs, nobody does a control. There's no, um, like, wild yeast, uh, no sulfur, no nothing. There's, uh, there's always something being added to the wines. So there's no data about what that wine can be just by itself on its own. It was also really important to me to understand the terroir of each of the locations where we have vineyards. We farm four different sites. And those four are all different, even the two that are across the road from each other. So for me, it was about learning you know, who that grape was in that place and what kind of wine uh, that, what kind of story it would tell by itself. Now having said that, our home farm vineyards, the two across the road from each other, uh, that is a co-ferment field blend. Uh, and you know, only because it felt right. It's planted to six different varieties on both sides. They all get picked together, crushed together, fermented together, um, and they, we make two wines, a sparkling and a still, from those two vineyards. We have variations on a theme in the other vineyards because they're all co-planted. I, I think in Vermont, everything is co-planted to many varieties because everything was an experiment. There weren't any single vineyards that were, um, single variety vineyards that were planted. So in my vineyard in Virgins, it's four different varieties. In my vineyard in West Ass Addison, it's two. Uh, and we, we, for as small as we are, we make way too many wines. You know, we're making like 25, maybe even 30 wines after this year. Uh, but that's because exactly what the question you're asking of having single variety and co-ferments to see what, how they do talk to each other. And uh, that is what makes it so exciting. One of the things that makes it so exciting. Yeah. One of, one of the things that, that I've learned to do, uh, particularly with black Spanish in a year that's conducive to it, is to do multiple pickings. I don't just declare a harvest. Um, I, uh, I'm very diligent to, to not overcrop. Uh, you know, I prune like I'm going to be the one making the wine. But um, when the grapes are still green, I'll go through and do a green harvest. I'll look at every plant and make sure that it doesn't have too much fruit or that it's properly balanced. And with that, I'll make a verjus, which, believe it or not, uh, I mean, it takes just as much time and attention if you're a cobbler to make a baby's shoes as it does an adult's shoes, and it takes just as much time and attention almost to make a verjus. But it's a very valuable product. Um, I, I mean, I, I sell that to restaurants. I use it to make cocktails with. Uh, it makes great salads with olive oil because it doesn't have that acetobacter note to it. It doesn't kill wine. And then I'll go through and do two, maybe three more pickings. And I'm, uh, I'm looking for increased sugars at the end, keeping an eye on the pH. And then it's kind of like cooking. Um, I may take the first, press the first picking, and then take the cake from that and put that in the fermenting bin of the second picking to try to pick up a little more color. And black Spanish is a tinturier grape, like Alicante Boucher, it has colored juice. So at the time of the harvest, it's already raspberry colored. And with the bluish black skins, it can get really richly colored. Uh, <clears throat> and then, uh, so I've, I've been known to add the cake to the second picking and then the third picking uh, it's just it's just on its own, and then I'll I'll uh, play around with making blends with that. The same grape, but three different pickings uh, this year. Uh, and you got with black Spanish. I learned over I learned pretty quickly after a few years. You need to press it really young. I mean really early. Um, I might have uh, a picking that's 26 bricks, and I might press that wine. Believe it or not, at 18 bricks. It's not even halfway through fermenting. And I'll press it, all native yeast. I'll make those yeast do millions and millions of somersaults and discombobulate them. And then they start picking up the fermentation in the barrel and where they'll go for four or five months before they start to wind down. And if I've found if I press it early, it'll retain its beautiful, rich color. 
earlier on, I would make it like I would Venefra, and it would be beautiful color at the press, and then after a few years, the color would tend to drop out of it. Not brown, but not the vibrant color that I was looking for. So, you know, I, I, I've learned to do different things, and it's kind of like cooking. This year, uh, and y'all may have heard of this, but Tony Katuri, this was his harebrained scheme, uh, he said, okay, uh, we're gonna, I want you to separate the stems, of course, for the first picking, but then I want you to lay them out in the hot Texas sun and toast them up really good. And uh, I said, yeah, but what if they get sort of funky? You know, I mean, what if they get, you know, uh, acetobactery? He said, you're in Texas, you get plenty of sun, leave them out there for three days, you know? And I did, and it, I mean, the next day, <clears throat> they were brown yeah. and crunchy. Uh, and smelled kind of like oak. And I put, on the third day, I put them back in the bin. And you talk about hard to press the, <laughs> the cake down. But at first it was very tannic. And Tony, he told me this is gonna give you a really creamy texture. And then this is 2019. And uh, at first it was bitter, which black Spanish needs tannin. It lacks tannin, I think. But uh, lo and behold, after several months, uh, the mid-palate started getting creamy and rich. Uh, and it was kind of a fun thing to play with. So I've got, I've got some of that, then I've got some that has the cake from that put in with the second picking fermentation. And I've got a third picking that doesn't have any of that stuff in it. So it's, it's almost like having stuff to blend with different varietals, because they're all three different wines that have different um, attributes. Okay. It's Next, kind of oops, reacting to it. Yeah. Next question. Thanks. Yes. I absolutely feel that way. I mean, a, a tangerine is not an orange. I love tangerines. They're easier to peel, for one thing. I mean, uh, you know, but I mean, that's exactly right. You have to, you should embrace it for what it is. And that's, at, at the end, it, it didn't matter to me that all my efforts with Venefra didn't really work out because not only do I have children that don't want to run away from home every week, but I've also got wine that uh, is different. I mean, I used to, and you know, Alice may have mentioned, I don't know about high-powered lawyer, but I was a trial lawyer, and I've often kidded, uh, the world needs another serviceable Cabernet about as much as it needs another really good lawyer. And, uh, and I was supposedly really good, but my point is, I, you know, I, that's why I loved your wines when I, when I walked away from the raw fair the first time I came because they're interesting, they're different. I mean, I have a private cellar that's pretty well stocked with wine from all over the world and never had I had wine like that that delivered such an eye-opening, pleasurable experience. I mean, let's don't forget the pleasure scale. That holds 100 points mm. out there too. Yeah. And uh, I just enjoyed mm. drinking your wines. And I want to get some more of this one. We get a chance. Well, you know, congratulations <laughs> on wanting to work with these just things that are just their own thing. That's great. Yes. actually don't really think about the market, and I know nobody's going to actually believe me exactly. when I say that. No, I believe you. I, I, <laughs> I totally believe you. Um, I, 
<laughs> What's important to me is that I stick to my guns and that I focus on uh, the fruit and the place. And if I do that, the rest will take care of itself. And I think that's all of our tasks, you know, as, as wine growers. That is what we should be focused on. Well, and Deirdre, we were talking about this last night a little bit. Are you okay. ready to put your grape variety back on the label? Oh, that's right. You asked me that. <laughs> so, so what Alice is mentioning, and to, to your question also, yes. when I first started, I because of this um, uh, lack of respect, second stepchild Cinderella story situation uh, with hybrids, I did not want people to go, ah, a Marquette, not interested, like right? Because that's what was happening. That's what happens. So. I didn't put anything on the label except the name. Actually, this is kind of a funny story. I put uh, Vergen Blanc and Vergen Rouge because it was from the village of Vergen. I was trying to like do the old school thing, old world thing. And I had someone write to me and say, who knew that I was using it as a place name. And I got it past uh, the TTB because they thought that I meant it was a grape variety, which I had no <laughs> idea that it was. And this, this person who became a friend was like, you know, I tasted your Virgin Rouge, which doesn't taste anything like the grape Virgin, and you probably want to take that off <laughs> your label because, you know, nobody wants to drink Virgin. That's like, you That's know. Funny. Um, so, you know, I heeded that uh, and, and didn't put it on the label because I wanted people just to taste the wine, not to associate a grape. Uh, you know, I kind of took that, the French idea that it didn't matter what was in the bottle, just enjoy it, taste it, and take right. it for what it was. But to your point, now, I mean, here we are sitting having a conversation about hybrids and, and what they mean for us in the future, and we're talking about them as real wine. That wasn't happening 10, 15 years ago. We never could have had that conversation. So I actually do have the you grape do. name on a couple of labels. Um, and I, that, I guess that's something I have to think about because I, my feeling is still the same. The wine is the wine. Let's not get hung up on what it is. It's a grape. Right. It grows in a place. I want you to pay attention to the, uh, the place. And actually, it's, that is the reason why the last book that I wrote, Dirty Guide to Wine, I wrote specifically for this because I wanted to try to do, at least put some literature out that really the, bring people back to place. It is the most important thing and then choose what grows on it. But if you start thinking about the grape variety first, I think that you're fucked. Well, kind of. I was gonna, I was gonna say one other thing, but uh, Deidre hit the nail on the head just saying that you focus on the wine, the rest is gonna take care of itself, and that's absolutely a million percent true. But beyond that, hybrids you know, have this potential to significantly reduce your carbon footprint. Like, What's going to be the backlash if you have a wine that's 50% less carbon emitting than any vinifera? It's like, and it's cheaper to produce and it's, it's more affordable. It's like, what, what backlash are you going to get if it also enhances on the pleasure scale as well? But Especially. You know, I, I think that's about, oh, do we have time for one more perhaps? Do we? I don't know. We're not, we can, right? One more. Okay. Yeah, you know, that's a... Uh, I think that is, I mean, I'm just conjecturing here, but I, I think that is probably primarily done when you find something out in the field that is super different, and then you're going to look at it further, and that would probably be when you would do, like, further testing and maybe verify that it, it, there's like some serious significant differences in it that you want to look at further and like I think that would be the application for way down the line but I mean grapes that are unidentified 
in regular vineyards do get uh, sequenced all the time just to find out what variety they are. You know, like uh, in a lot of old vineyards and all over the world that's done still. So, but like looking at biotype differences in uh, seedlings that you're using for hybrids, I, I just don't know that that's done that often. It's too young. The, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, we are actually starting to see differences. Uh, you know, we're seeing them in, in our vineyards, but uh, nobody's doing that work yet. But I'm sure it will come down the road at some point. Yeah. So I think we actually have to stop. we got to stop. We're being, we're being. We're being. <laughs> so thank you very much. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.